In the third chapter of Acts, we have the amazing story of the healing of the lame man. Peter and John were on their way to the temple, not to sacrifice, which they needed no longer to do, but to pray, which they always needed to do. And at the beautiful gate, there was a lame man who symbolizes a crippled world at the door of the church. There was a lameness, for one thing, and we've never had more of that than in this world today. It's a crippled world. It's a wreck. It's full of cripples. Sickness has done it. Sorrow has done it. Sin has done it. Satan has done it. Some are lame in body. They carry the seeds of sin and death. We sometimes speak of an incurable malignancy, but everybody has it for that matter. Some of these folks who have a, a terminal illness, that we call it that, that's what we all have, we're going to die. And they may last longer than you will. So uh, I think we ought to quit throwing around that word, a terminal illness. As a matter of fact, we're all headed for death. And then some of us, it's, it's in the mind, I hate to make you feel any worse, but you're not all there, really. What mistakes we make, what blunders, what wrong decisions. And then the Spirit, there's such a big uh, gap in this generation, it's not the communications gap so much. The great gulf between mind and spirit, we've made an A in the world of science, and we've flunked in the world of spirit, smart enough to walk to the moon and spiritually we wallow in the mud and while we cruise toward the stars we crawl in the slime the whole world groans in travail it's a lame world there was a lameness and then there was a look he looked on Peter and John and uh, they uh, said, we have something to give to you. And every minister ought to remember on Sunday morning, who are these people but his friends who have come to him in their journey to use the figure of our Lord in that parable. And they're looking up to us. God help us if we don't have something to give to them. And then there was a lift. Peter lifted him up. Now, Peter wasn't in the uplift business. That's something else. If they'd had uh, a social gospel and nothing but, when the prodigal son came along, somebody would have given him a bed and a sandwich and he never would have gotten home. We need more than that. There's no life in uh, a live. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. There's no power in that name Baptist. I'm sorry. There's no power in uh, the name of any famous preacher. There's no power in the name of any church, maybe as big as the Pentagon. There's only one name with life in it. His name through faith in his name, it says, made the cripple rise. Love lifted me. He lifted me. That's a lift with life in it. And then there was a leap. Uh, he made quite a spectacle of himself, that man, when he was healed. Old Jerusalem was in an uproar. Peter and John were forbidden to preach, and they had a prayer meeting that ended in an earthquake. And all because a lame man looked and was lifted and leaped, and the publicity followed, you see. Today we try to create the publicity first. We advertise the revival before it ever happens, and then it doesn't happen. Pentecost didn't need a press agent at all. The lame man here was his own advertisement. But there's another little note, and I haven't read this account, but 
there's one little verse over in the fourth chapter, sort of a postscript that tells us the man was over 40 years old on whom the miracle was showed. Now, why did the Holy Spirit go to all that trouble to tell us that he was over 40? Well, for one thing, if anything miraculous happens to anybody over 40, it's worth an extra verse, believe me. Most people get rested by then. They get in a groove. Somebody is, uh, we're all familiar with the term, the saying that life begins at 40. Did in this case, great many other things start at 42. In Christian life, sometimes rigor mortis sets in. We have a lot of youth movements today, the accents on youth, but I long to see a revival among the 40-year-olds and over. Not much is ever said about them. Nobody ever preaches to them. Everything's slanted to the young folks. First half of your life, you're romantic. In the last half, you're uh, rheumatic. But uh, life doesn't need to flatten out. The psychology is all against a new start after you're 40. I've looked over my crowd this morning. And most of you look like you're over 40. I think you are, and the others will pardon me. You will make it eventually. It just takes time. And uh, so our old folks and our 40-year-olds and older sit in church say, let the young people go forward. I've had it. I've had my day. There we are, steadfast and unmovable. Uh, I'm not half so worried about what the young folks are coming to as what the older folks have already come to. You know that we get fixed, set in our ways. You can pour cement out there for a sidewalk and a child can step on it and leave a footprint for years and years and years, but let it harden and an elephant can stand on it. It makes no difference. How many of you were saved before you were 21? Ah, there it is. It's always that way, no matter when. That's always the way it goes. But the middle mile, beloved, is the hardest part of life's journey. There's a certain exhilaration at the beginning, and there's a certain thrill at the finish. But it's the middle mile that tests the traveler. I grew up in the country. I used to hoe corn and cotton. My father had a little patch down on a creek bottom, and uh, of a morning I felt pretty good when we started to work. And there was a certain uh, exhilaration in the evening when it was all over, and we got in the old wagon and went back up the hill to that little house on top to my supper of cornbread and milk that never varied through the years. But the hardest part of the whole day was the middle of the day when it was too far from sunrise and too long to sunset. And I didn't need any Bible scholar to explain what that verse meant about the burden and heat of the day. I was well aware of that. Now youth and age have their delights, but when the sunrise glow has disappeared and the sunset has not yet filled the West, or tempted to be like that dear fellow in the meeting in Kansas that preacher went to him and asked him, do you want to go to heaven? And he said, no. And the preacher said, do you want to go to hell? And he said, no. And the preacher said, well, what do you want to do? And he said, well, I just as soon live right on in Kansas. We've got an awful lot of people like that. They get set. My heart goes out to these middle-agers. They're the backbone of the church. They bear the financial burden. And if they're not as starry-eyed 
They've learned a lot from experience. I'd like to rouse some of them from their midday nap. Youth has fire without light, and age has light without fire. And I don't believe we ought to leave all the fire to youth and all the light to age. I think we ought to combine both and be a burning and a shining light for the Lord. That's the way the Bible puts it. The accent is on youth, but revivals for all ages. When Joel, and he was a revivalist, called the people to an awakening, listen what he said. All ages, this isn't a youth revival. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breast, let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the elder. That's for everybody. God hasn't committed his program to any age group. We need youth to keep the church from going too uh, slow and age to keep it from going too fast. And certainly the 40-year-olds need as much as anybody. I know we uh, worry a lot about juvenile delinquency, but it's this other crowd with the boldness and the bifocals and the bridges and the bulges and the bunions that comes in for a lot of need, if you believe me. And we're capable of some real devilment, too, at our time. And we have just as much to repent of as anybody else. I get amused sometimes at some of these things that this emphasis for the young folks, and I have a better response from young people than I've ever had in my life. Don't misunderstand me. But the way some of them talk, you'd think young people had just been invented. Well, we've had them around as far as I can remember. And they all need what they always have needed. They need to repent and confess and present their bodies a living sacrifice and put on the Lord Jesus and make not provision for the lust of the flesh. But I'm concerned about that danger in Psalm 91 the destruction that wasted at noonday. There are many reasons why middle-agers ought to be the very first ones to go to the mourner's bench. We have the responsibility of example. We've been on the road longer. We ought to be the best witnesses, and sometimes we're not. Sometimes the happiest fellow in the world is a young Christian before he's met too many Bible scholars. We've been on the road uh, a long time. It ought to count. And then ours is the responsibility of the home, the foundation of the national life's the home. Somebody said there's just as much authority in the home now as ever. The children use it. Well, that is perhaps true. And everything's controlled by a switch except the children these days. But we have the responsibility of money. Young people have more money than they used to have, but they don't have most of it yet. The Bible does not teach the uh, denial of money. It doesn't teach the deification of money. It teaches the dedication of money. And ours is the responsibility of time, and some of us don't have as much as we used to have. Oh, there was a day when I can say now when I'm 20, when I'm 30, when I'm 40, when I'm 50, when I'm 60, when I'm 70, look out. And then I say when I'm old, everything. I don't have many more decades to count on. They get pretty rare after that, you know. And so we need to buy up the opportunities because the days are evil. And no man needs to grapple more with middle age than ministers and Christian workers. Paul wanted to finish his course with joy. You're never safe, beloved, till you're home. Now you're saved, but I said safe as far as losing your 
testimony and your witness. Oh, so many have started gloriously and they ran well until within sight of the goal. They finished miserably. What a fool a man or a woman can be after 40. Moses, think about it, made his greatest blunder after 40. David the shepherd boy after 40. Gideon after 40. King Asa after 40. Uzzah, he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. It worked just the other way around. No wonder we need to pray Psalm 71, 18. Now also when I'm old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not, until I've showed thy strength unto this generation and thy power to everyone that is to come. It was a great preacher who said, God, keep me from being a wicked old man. I've seen them rise and fall. I've had 60 years in the ministry. I've seen the tortoise outrun the hare many a time. I've seen them go up like rockets and come down like rocks. I've seen them start out with a bang and end in a bog. Let not him that girdeth on his harness boast himself as him that putteth it off. Now, I'm not thinking only of preachers who collapse morally. That's sad. But there are other... Uh, examples where they finish just as seriously, just as sadly, though maybe not so sensationally. Men who lose their vision and leave their first love and sink into lusterless professionalism and uh, over whose ministry for 40 years could be written Ichabod, the glorious departed. That's why we have some churches like that. I've been in some, I've been named the Ichabod Memorial Church because the power's gone, the blessing's gone. Faultily faultless, icily regular, splendidly no. Now, the wonderful thing about this man was that he had a miracle after 40, and there are so few of them. Most people don't look for miracles after then. The scoffers that say all things continue as they were since the beginning of creation, everything's just cause and effect. I'm not really looking for anything to happen. And yet we're living among miracles all the time. Your Bible's a miracle. The church is a miracle. Every Christian's a miracle. Christian life's a miraculous life. Miraculous in its origin, it's the gift of God. Miraculous in its operation by the grace of God. And miraculous in its objective, the glory of God. You remember that John the Baptist was in jail and he sent a delegation to Jesus to ask, are you the one who should come? Or do we look for another? Now, that was a very big drop for John the Baptist, the man who had stood on Jordan with an affirmation. He's now in jail with an interrogation. It's one thing to stand on Jordan and preach it and another thing to stay in jail and take it. And I'm glad the Lord didn't send him a cute little tract on how to be happy in jail. My Lord sent a message to him, said, tell him I'm still running on schedule. The blind are seeing and the lame are walking and the lepers are cleansed and the dead, they hear and the dead are raised up and uh, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus said the best thing he ever said about John the Baptist. Just after John the Baptist had said the poorest thing he ever said about Jesus. He knows our frame and he remembers it where it does. This concludes side one. Please turn the tape over and continue listening on side two. And when my, uh, when my dear wife died nearly two years ago, September the 2nd, died at uh, 
3.15 in the morning and I preached at 11. And you know what the Lord gave me was this very thing that Jesus said. He first said, I'm on schedule, and then he gave the forgotten beatitude. We know the other beatitudes. I never find anybody who knows this one. Blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Blessed is the man who never gets upset by the way I run my business, Jesus is saying. And I found myself saying, I don't know why, Lord, but I accept it. I want the beatitude of the unoffended. Every preacher ought to be in the miracle business, every Christian. Dr. Ironside, great old preacher of Moody Church, said there was a dear lady who every time they had a testimony meeting, she'd get up and say, 40 years ago, she always started out 40 years ago. And he said, I just had to go to her one day and say, dear lady, hasn't anything happened since? Do you have to look back 40 years? I remember years ago when Billy Graham was around 40, he came to a meeting of mine at a conference, and we walked over to lunch together, and I had talked about, I think I preached about it here, have you lost the wonder? And he said, well, that's our problem. And he said, I tell the team sometimes if we ever lose the wonder, we're sunk. And he said, somebody told me the other day that every preacher ought to be converted again at 40, and he was just about 40 then. And he said, I think that's very, very true. We have had in Greensboro a remarkable example of miracle, not after 40, but after 70. Dr. Claude Bowen said to me one day, I want you to meet a young convert, a most amazing man. And uh, he was Dr. Raymond Taylor. He was the head of the drama department of the University of North Carolina across the street from where I live for all these years. One of the buildings is named for him. A Harvard man, a man of amazing knowledge of literature, but an infidel and an unbeliever for 70-odd years. And his wife prayed for 45 years that he'd be saved. And then just a few years ago, he got saved. And I asked him, we're buddies now. We go out and have a meal together just about every chance we have. He's 80. I'm 73. He said, I'm going to take you downtown and buy you some toys. <laughs> but uh, we, we have a great time. And I said to him, I said, Doctor, tell me, had you been in a revival? No. Had you heard a preacher? No. What happened? He said, God woke me up in the middle of the night to show me what a lost old sinner I was. And then I got this heart-chilling bit of information. I said, in all your years as an infidel here in the universe, did anybody ever come to you and say anything to you about Jesus Christ? No. No preacher. Nobody. Now that's one to think over and weep about, it seems to me. And now he's going everywhere. You never, he's like a kid with a new toy. You never saw anybody as happy in all your life bragging on Jesus Christ. 
He goes to all churches. He doesn't know one from another. That's a good way to be anyhow, I think. You know, if you preach here, they won't let you preach over here sometimes. But he doesn't know all that. So he's having the time of his life. And would you believe it? They appointed him at first church there. He's now one of the deacons and head of the evangelism department there. And they appointed him to write the tribute to J. Clyde Turner for our convention, state convention annual. I <clears throat> never heard Turner in all that time. Amazing. And yet, he knew what a man Turner was. And he brought it over for me to read, and I have been thoroughly amazed at not only his literary skill in the preparation of it, but in a short time, the way that man has been feeding on his Bible. I was over to his house for dinner, and he asked the blessing, and he started, Abba, Father. You know, here many folks do that, you know. But he's been digging in the book. Oh, that's miracles. That's miracles. After 70. And so I wrote a little piece about him and gave it to him, and he's trying to get, going to try to get a book published with his testimony in it. And I said, now, if it doesn't get in your book, I'm going to put it in mine. And I'm calling it Miracles After 70. <clears throat> well, it's one thing or the other. And I, my prayer continually is I'd rather God take me to heaven this very hour than to let me, by even circumstances beyond my control, get into some situation that would cause people to remember the blunder I made at the finish and forget all the good things God did. And they'll remember the bad one, you know, and forget the other. So watch it, dear friends. The other day, oh, some time ago now, a friend of mine in Providence, Rhode Island, said to me, we're talking about a great preacher. Oh, I've heard him, and he really uh, walked about in Zion and glory crowned the mercy seat. But he said, you know what? There was a time in my life when he was my greatest inspiration. And then there came a time when he was my greatest warning. So we can't be too careful, but thank God that we can have miracles. And I thank God for grace for all years. I went out to Travis Avenue Church in Fort Worth over Easter, and uh, the uh, single adults were having a three-day conference wound up then with the church service. They wanted me to talk about loneliness, and they thought I was a pretty good uh, one to talk about it after what I've been through. And I said, well, I certainly will. And then I got Isaiah 40:31 on my mind, and there's grace for all gears in that passage. You know, when I started out, Ford automobiles only had high gear and low gear, and the high wasn't very high, and the low was mighty low sometimes. And then they put in an intermediate. But Isaiah 40:31 uh, has grace for all three gears. It starts in high gear. It flies, he goes, run and not be weary, walk and not faint. And I think of that dear old man whose wife had prayed like Dr. Taylor's wife had prayed for him for years. And then he went to church and got saved. The next morning, while she was preparing breakfast, he stood in the kitchen and said, Come look out the window. Did you ever see things look so pretty as they do this morning? She said it was the drabbest, darkest day that you can possibly imagine. There wasn't a thing to get happy about looking out the window. The scenery hadn't changed, but he had. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing 
And all the tree, the trees shall clap their hands. And he said to her, you know, it looks so good, it looks like even the trees want to clap their hands. Well, he was certainly scriptural. Heaven above is softer, blue earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs o'erflow, flowers with deeper beauty shine. Since I know as now I know I'm his, he is mine. And let me bear just a closing minute of testimony to the fact that you don't have to wait for your blessing. You don't have to say, it's not for me anymore. I had them when I was young. I had some when I was young too. But may I say to you that the presence and the blessing of God has been more real to me in the last two years than ever before in all my life. There's always something better ahead before you get over there, so take advantage of it. Father, I pray for all here assembled this day, for the young people that they may indeed, by the grace of God, find grace for flying, that middle-agers may find grace for running and that the older folks may find grace for walking. In Jesus' name, amen.